0: Hello everyone, and welcome to Livewire's Rules of Investing. I'm Patrick Polk, Editor at Livewire Markets, and today we're sitting down with Jordan Alessio, Chief Economist at ABC Bullion. After starting his career at the 200-year-old Kaznov Capital in London, he moved on to be the Head of Investment Analytics at AMP Capital. Jordan was writing and speaking about Bitcoin long before most people had ever even heard of it. In fact, I even found a post by him on Livewire from 2013 discussing Bitcoin. He recently produced a detailed report entitled Bitcoin Dollars Gold, What is the Future of Money?, where he discusses some of the real-world applications, the technology behind the currency, and compares it to more traditional monetary assets. Just yesterday, the RBA governor, Dr. Philip Lowe, called Bitcoin a speculative mania. So given the huge interest in the topic right now, I thought it was a good time to sit down and discuss the issue. This week, we discuss the bull and bear cases, initial coin offerings or ICOs, and why people in Venezuela and Zimbabwe are so attracted to Bitcoin. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, Jordan. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Patrick. Um, look, I know you wrote a big report about Bitcoin recently and um, there was some really interesting discussion in there. It's it's pretty difficult to find unbiased commentary on Bitcoin. So, uh, it, really looking forward to picking your brain and, and seeing what we can learn here.
1: I'm looking forward to discussing it. It's a, you know, obviously, it's the, the most exciting story in finance of, of the last few years, really. So, it, it is topical and it's important for investors to to get an understanding of Bitcoin and and other monetary assets
0: and the like. When Bitcoin first kind of rose to prominence, it was primarily gold investors who were interested in product. Um, It kind of fell off everybody's radar for a couple of years and then now seems to have resurfaced uh, with a much more mainstream appeal. So I guess that's why I thought it'd be interesting to talk to yourself. You've probably been hearing about it and around it for a lot longer. I mean, does that agree with your own experience? Oh, look, I think there's been a
1: a natural attraction, I suppose, from, I'd say, a certain section of the the gold or precious metal buying community. Um, Most most investors that hold precious metals still wouldn't own Bitcoin, but there's definitely some crossover there. Um, And I suppose the... You know that that baseline appeal of of a form of money that's outside the control of a, a central bank, um, you know, has 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 appeal to um, to some gold investors. But look, I think the the reason that there well, there are a handful of reasons why people are so excited about Bitcoin now, and and, and why a much larger um, community of buyers or speculators are interested in Bitcoin now. And look, the first and most obvious one is that the price gain has been extraordinary. So. Anyone and, and I include myself in this who doesn't to some degree admit they wish they'd been long Bitcoin is, is probably kidding themselves um, because there hasn't been any mainstream asset class that's offered anywhere near the kind of return that Bitcoin has in the last sort of last three or four years and, and particularly in the last six months alone. Um, so I think it was you know Bob Farrell who in his you know ten rules of investing, which are an absolute must read for for any investor. I think rule number ten from from him was bull markets are more fun than bear markets. And the best bull market in finance right now is Bitcoin. So it's no surprise that it's attracting more and more interest, more and more investors. Um, You know, there's a few other tailwinds as well. I mean, the the fundamental concept of digital money, of anonymous money, of money that can be transmitted um, easily all around the world, essentially borderless currency. Um, Those, you know, those characteristics definitely have an appeal to a certain type of investor. Um, And I think fundamentally as well, um, and I'm not a a Bitcoin investor right now, um, but the blockchain itself is potentially revolutionary technology with implications or or potential business use cases, um, not only in financial services and in banking, but across a wide range of industries. So there are some genuine tailwinds for blockchain development. Um, and whilst, whilst the Bitcoin price continues to rise and, and be the most dominant story in finance, it's no surprise it's attracting more and more, you know, whether we call them investors or speculators, I guess you know, time will tell. But yeah, it's, clear, it's, it's no surprise why the interest is there.
0: Yeah, the, the numbers are, are pretty staggering. Um, I don't know, you, you had some, some numbers you were mentioning there to me before. I wonder if you wanted to go over them briefly with us.
1: Yeah, sure. So I think um, you know if, if you if you look at one of the reasons why I certainly think the the price of Bitcoin um, and there are other cryptos that would fall in this basket as well, why it's looking pretty bubbly and, and why I think new investors need to be careful, is it's not just the the total size of the gain that we've seen over the last ten year, or, or sort of eight or nine years since since Bitcoin first you know came to market as it were. It's that the speed of the price gains has rapidly expanded. So, um, I was looking back at some data um, this morning before coming on the show, and it took roughly twelve hundred and fifty days for Bitcoin to go from one thousand to fifteen hundred dollars. So let's call that four years for it to move five hundred bucks. It moved five hundred dollars this morning, and <laughs> five hundred dollars again, I think, on Friday. So you know, here we are with Bitcoin in U.S. dollars, almost at ten thousand bucks an ounce. Um, you know, at the start of this year it was closer to a thousand. And that rise in the value of Bitcoin has dragged the entire cryptocurrency universe along with it. You know, at the start of the year we were talking about a twenty billion dollar industry, where now we're talking about a two hundred and fifty billion dollar industry. So any doesn't matter what asset class you're looking at, if it's if it's gone, you know, if it's ten bagged in the space of ten months, at the very least you should be thinking about taking some profits or if you're a new investor to the space. At least asking yourself the question, is this really the
0: time I, I want to get into this? I guess it's not just the, the price of Bitcoin either. It's the number of new coins that are coming out, which has expanded rapidly as well. I, uh, I, one of my, my colleagues here went to his first ICO meeting recently, uh, which seems to be becoming a more common occurrence.
1: Yeah, I, I, that, that's absolutely right. So I think at, at last check, there's, there's now over a thousand cryptocurrencies that are available in the, in, in the marketplace. Um, they're incredibly easy to create. So, you know you, you know, you and I could create Patrick and Jordan coin tomorrow if we wanted to, or, you know, you could create Livewire coin without any ma- major technological barrier. Um, so, yeah, when you, when you look at, you know, what are the warning signs for a bubble? the the speed of the price gain and, and the absolute size of the price gain is an obvious one. Um, the fact that there has been this proliferation of cryptos and this ICO craze with you know businesses using ICOs to raise funds rather than the traditional venture capital model now um, those are warning signs of a bubble. Um, I think when you see sort of the celebrity endorsement from the you know the Paris Hiltons and the Floyd Mayweather's of of this world, you you have to start. Worrying a little bit, and, and probably the the saddest one as part of the the research I, I did for that report I published a week or so ago, I, I spent hours listening to webinars and, and you name it, and I suppose refreshing my my knowledge on Bitcoin because I've been studying it for years. Um, and it is pretty worrying when you see people, you know, w- with webinars. There's nothing wrong with telling people, to, you know, to, to punt twenty bucks or a hundred bucks or you know what you can afford to lose on on, on Bitcoin. But when you see people um, you know sh- telling the story of the retired school teacher that's now paid off their house and taken their kids to di- or grandkids to Disneyland and you know it's always a blue collar you know everyday joe or jane that's you know basically turned their life around on as a result of bitcoin now look that that probably has happened for a very small number of people in the last couple of years that's absolutely not what's likely to happen in the next few years and so when you see those kind of things happening you sort of say look this this has all the characteristics of a bubble. Doesn't mean it's going to burst tomorrow, but every single warning sign or, or, or you know, or red
0: flag is out there. Yeah, well, there's certainly, um, as you said, there, there's a lot of warning signs. But I guess there's also a lot of people who are very excited about it too. I mean, what, what would you, what would you say is the is the bull case for, for Bitcoin? Yeah, look, I think it it is too just it is too easy just to dismiss it as
1: as a bubble and to say there's nothing there. Like like blockchain, as I say, is 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 a very exciting technology, and I have no doubt that it's here to stay. Um, I think there are some other ball cases for, or, or I suppose tailwinds, I should say, supporting the, the development of Bitcoin um, and and blockchain technology as a whole. The the first is this incredible. Increase in in capital, both the monetary, but probably more importantly, the human capital side of things that is now investigating and working in blockchain and looking at ways to make blockchain work in in a range of industries. So that is that is definitely a factor. Um, I think the other thing is um, if you look at who are the the natural buyers of Bitcoin, um, it has typically, um, not exclusively, but typically been dominated by let's call them millennials, people under the age of 35. And, and that's pretty natural. They're very, very comfortable with digital currency full stop. They're, they've been at the forefront of the revolution in, in, in cashless payments, you know, card payments, tap and go, Apple Pay, all of those things. So the idea of digital currency is sort of native to them anyway. Um, and I think the other thing is that, you know, we have to think about why did Bitcoin even come into existence in the first place? And it's no surprise that it was in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, um, bailouts of banks, the onset of QE1, QE2, etc. So as much as we haven't seen uh, inflation across the developed world increase, at least not in terms of consumer prices, in, in asset prices, we most definitely have, it's no surprise that more and more people every day are asking, look, does the current monetary system really work? And for as long as we see, you know, Bank of Japan with you know, a balance sheet that's 60, 70% of of Japanese GDP. As long as we see the Swiss National Bank, one of the major buyers of stock on the market today, not to mention what's happening in some emerging markets, it's no surprise more and more people are looking for a bit of a monetary alternative. And, you know, when I wrote the report, I was thinking about it. You know, if you were... I've, I've been to Venezuela. I was there about several years ago. Absolutely extraordinary place, but even then it was on the road to ruin. And you have to ask yourself, you know, if you were a Venezuelan, would... Would you rather be long Bolivar or long Bitcoin? Like I can see the attraction as to why people are are looking at this um, at this you know so-called monetary instrument. Um, I, I think it is a bubble right now. I wouldn't invest in it, but you can see that there are some tailwinds there.
0: Yeah, well, I guess there's, there's got to be an element of truth to to every bubble, doesn't there? Um, there's there's always there's always a kernel of truth that starts it all.
1: Absolutely, and and if you think of And a lot of people are making this analogy. If you think of um, the dot-com boom, and I worked, um, I was sort of, uh, you know, I was very early on in my uh, financial services career then, um, but I was quite fortunate. Um, I worked for both a discount stockbroker and then for a fund manager through that phase. So I sort of got to see it from both sides. Saw retail punters coming in and buying the latest, you know, generally, usually it was a mining company that was sort of, turning you know spinning out into a, a you know a technology company i don't know voice over internet pr- protocols or something like
0: that these days it's moved back in the uh, that, opposite direction that's and the right. mining companies are taking over the tech shelves yeah, again yeah that's
1: that's right <laughs> that's right um so if if you look at that i mean anyone that bought the long term bullish case for the internet and its ability to fundamentally change commerce was correct right I, the most obvious story is Amazon. You know, I think I think if you're a buyer in Amazon at the IPO and you'd held till today, the return is some, it's something like 60,000% from memory. It's, an, it's a, a life-changing gain that's almost impossible to compute in, in real dollars. But the reality is that, but you know, as, as accurate as that is, there was still, I think, a 95% correction in the share price of Amazon during the NASDAQ boom, because whilst the, whilst the dream that people believed in turned out to be true, the price that they paid for it very early on in the piece was way, way, way too high relative to what businesses are delivered now. And, you know, when you then compare that to Bitcoin, I mean, Amazon never pretended to be the future of money. It pretended, or didn't pretend, it turned out to be the future of e-commerce, I suppose, and and, and retail. Um, If you think about what Bitcoin is promising to be, the, the future of money, the premier monetary asset on the planet, that means it has to replace the U.S. dollar, the euro, the Japanese yen, you know, pound sterling. It needs to replace gold. That is that is an incredible suggestion for to, to think that a monetary system that is essentially a piece of software created by a, an anonymous person or an anonymous group of people who incidentally banked the first million coins for themselves, the idea that that's really going to be the future of our monetary system I think is is a bit of a stretch. And I think investors should be, they by all means, participate in this bull run for now, but be very cautious about what you're buying into and and understand how far-fetched
0: the, the bullish case for Bitcoin really is. So I guess we've talked a little bit about the bull and the bear cases. What do you think are some of the flaws in these arguments? Well, as I say, the, the the floor in in the bearish case, or, or the
1: floor in just dismissing it as a bubble, is you know, is that there are those tailwinds which I've, I've spoken about. So I have no doubt blockchain's here to stay, and I have no doubt that we'll see more experiments with digital currency. I suppose over time, um, that doesn't necessarily mean anything positive for Bitcoin itself, <clears throat> but for for blockchain tech and, and and cryptocurrency, there is some sort of tailwind there. But again, if I go back to the flaws in in the bullish argument, I. Being, being in gold, you're sort of constantly forced to, to question how money works and what money really is. And so when I look at Bitcoin, I ask myself, what are the fundamental problems with money that it proposes to solve? Now, many Bitcoin enthusiasts and, and many gold enthusiasts will will quite rightly argue that one of the issues with fiat currency is the centralized control and the sort of lack of accountability. Now, I have some sympathy with that. I think that, um, you know, the potential for a central bank just to create limitless amounts of fiat currency, same currency that I get paid in and try and save in and that my financial assets are denominated in, I think that's a, it is a recipe for disaster. Um, But then you look at Bitcoin, you go, okay, the guy that created it owns 5% of all the stock by all reports, and it is controlled by a group of miners, essentially, who are developing the protocol as we go along. As for the idea of the sort of potential over issuance, again, it's clear the, the, the potential problem with fiat currency, RBA, Bank of Japan, Bank of England, you name it, can all create it out of thin air. But there is nothing in theory to stop the developers of Bitcoin saying, yeah, you know what, we thought 21 million was the upper limit, but now we think it should be 22 or maybe 23. There, there's no rule that says that that can't happen. Um, from an accountability point of view as well, I mean, if you think about it, at least the Reserve Bank, they meet several times a year, they release their minutes, there are statements of monetary policy, they ultimately report through to the government, who we have a say in electing. It, should there be more accountability there? Of course. But compare that to what's going on in the crypto space, there's no governance, there's no accountability whatsoever. So and so to give you an example of this as, um, to, to investors that I think is relevant... Um, A couple of weeks ago, I spoke at an investment conference on the subject of Bitcoin and gold and and money. And um, this issue of of Bitcoin being more democratic came up. And so I asked the the audience a question and I said, look, how many of you guys actually own a Bitcoin? And about 50% of the audience put their hand up. I said, "Okay," I said, how many of you had any say in the recent uh, fork into Bitcoin cash or Bitcoin gold? And not one of them put their hand up. So I said to them, I said, so how is this democratic? This there's essentially new forms of Bitcoin created that are fundamentally outside of your control, and over 95% of all Bitcoins are held by less than four percent of the Bitcoin wallets. So the idea that this is democratic, I, I think it fails on on that score. So I don't really see that it that it actually um, fixes the fundamental issue with money as well. Um, more than that as well, I sort of asked myself, okay. How practical is Bitcoin in day-to-day commerce? So, okay, it's great that I can go and buy a coffee and tap with my Bitcoin card. That's cool. But when I think about, let's, let's think of some large scale transactions. Could I buy a house in New South Wales and pay in Bitcoin? Now, in theory, I could. Let's say you owned a house, you had a Bitcoin wallet, I could transfer you the Bitcoin. That's great. But for me to actually get title to the home, I've still got to go and register it with the New South Wales sta- you know, state government who are going to hit me with a stamp bill duty in Australian dollars and then the ATO is likely to find out that I've made a very sizable gain on Bitcoin and lump me with a capital gains tax bill. So, can I engage in some commerce with it? Yeah, can I really engage in meaningful commerce anonymously? Not really. So then I say, okay, how does that really help you know increase economic prosperity or or grease the wheels of market activity, which is actually the fundamental reason we have money in the first place, is to help facilitate commerce. I don't really see how, in a, in a large-scale, organized way, Bitcoin really does that. So those are all the reasons why, when I look at what the bulls are saying, to say this will be the future of money, I, I just don't see how that will play out.
0: It's funny that you use the example of buying a house. Uh, I actually just saw very recently on the news that somebody is attempting to sell their house uh, for Bitcoin. Uh, I asked a question that it seems like you were wondering a similar thing, which is why. Um, I'm not quite sure what, what, what the point of selling it in Bitcoin uh, was as you rightly pointed out, it's simply going to have to be transferred back to Australian dollars for the tax office and stamp duty. So, yeah, it it seems a confusing choice.
1: Uh, and I think the thing is as well, what we've got to really, when it, when it gets to money itself, what we've got to understand is that there is a fundamental difference between Bitcoin being a payment mechanism and a merchant accepting Bitcoin, just like they might accept you know a particular type of credit card versus it being the actual unit of account so again if you think of your morning coffee it's one thing for the barista or the local cafe to go yeah you can tap with your bitcoin card but i still get paid australian dollars versus them actually having to price the coffee in bitcoin or in bitcoin cash or in bitcoin gold or whatever the next fork for bitcoin is and so i think that's where people get confused with if i could make an analogy between the pipeline and the oil if that makes sense so Bitcoin may well be another really cool um, pipeline and way of moving money around, but that doesn't make it money itself. And, and that's where, again, you, you look at the fundamental argument Bitcoin or crypto enthusiasts are making is that this will be both the pipeline and the oil going forward. That, to me, is a, a fairly outlandish claim um, that when you sort of pull apart all the moving pieces, it just doesn't stack up for me.
0: You mentioned uh, fork in the currency there um it's a it 's a concept that I think is probably fairly unfamiliar to most people. I was wondering if you could explain to us what what a fork in the currency actually is and what are the implications and who who decides when one happens
1: yeah, so I think to to help explain forks and, and the potential issues with them uh, in terms of a monetary medium, sort of helps to take one quick step back and go, well, how does the blockchain fundamentally work?' And essentially, it's, you know, if you think of the two words in blockchain, block and chain, that it's actually it's actually a beautiful name because what you have is a series of transactions that are recorded in any given given block, and then they are then linked together in a in a chain of transactions or a chain of blocks, so that there is an indisputable ledger of all the transactions that have ever taken place on the blockchain. It's quite elegant and quite beautiful in a lot of ways. The thing is that the way that those blocks are formed, the speed, the amount of data, the number of transactions that are captured within them, that is actually set or designed and agreed upon by the miners that support the entire blockchain network. And generally, right now, they actually make their money by getting Bitcoins over time. So they're paid by getting new Bitcoin over time. Now, what we have happen here is that there's the potential obviously in any kind of development or software development, where eventually large groups of miners start disagreeing on how the protocols governing these blocks should work. Now, the differences might be around the speed at which they occur, the amount of data that can take that is transferred or registered with each block. And eventually, if enough of them disagree, they just go, OK, well, we're just going to split in two. And going forward, we're going to have two separate blockchains and two different ledgers that are carried forward into the future. Um, And that's already happened twice with Bitcoin. So now we have Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin Gold. Interestingly enough, when Bitcoin Gold was formed, I think one of the developers behind it claimed that the reason they were doing it was that that Bitcoin Gold was meant to be a better form of gold than Bitcoin, which was an interesting statement because it doesn't necessarily mean it's a better form of gold than just gold. (laughs) Um, But The the real issue with this, there there, there are three issues that I can think of um, when when it comes to the whole forking of Bitcoin as it pertains to Bitcoin being money itself, as opposed to it just being a piece of software, you know, accounting or marketing CRM that, yeah, of course, you can have 100 different types of them develop and the market ends up deciding which one's best for for businesses to use. So if you think about what happened when um, Bitcoin split into Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin Gold. The first thing that happened was that not everyone that owned a Bitcoin actually also got issued with some Bitcoin cash or some Bitcoin gold. Some of the exchanges wouldn't recognize the new form of money. So again, if you you draw an analogy back to our everyday life that we're used to, imagine the RBA decided to do a currency split, but but some banks wouldn't recognize the new dollar um, as well as
0: the old dollar. That would create chaos in the market, not not clarity. So was, sorry, was the, did the value essentially just evaporate of, that was lost on those Bitcoins or well, holders? Well,
1: not not essentially evaporate, but, but by definition, you've had some value that was purely captured in Bitcoin now moved to Bitcoin Cash and then to Bitcoin Gold and not everybody got access to that value at the same time, which is a massive problem in many ways analogous to the issue we have with central banks creating money and it going into the financial system first. Everyone on Wall Street parties, everyone on Main Street goes, well, this isn't helping me very much. And you end up with, you know, 10 years down the track, you end up with Brexit and Donald Trump. Um, so that that's the first issue with, with, with the forking. The, the second one is that it creates an identity crisis for the currency itself because people then start asking, well, which is the real... Bitcoin, which is the best one to hold, they all have differing performance characteristics going, or, or have had since since they've been launched. Now that that does that fundamentally doesn't work for for money. If you think about what what makes the U.S. dollar work, there's there's obviously a, a major issue with it in the long term in terms of the potential for the oversupply or over issuance for it. But at least day to day, a twenty dollar note is a twenty dollar note is a twenty dollar note. And two $10 notes will always equal $120. There is no ability for that to be split. Doesn't matter if you use $100 note or $101 notes, you're still talking the same amount of value. They still move all the same way. Same with gold. When it comes to gold, it doesn't matter if the ounce of gold was just mined out of the ground today in Western Australia, whether it's sitting in jewelry form around someone's wrist in India, or whether it's sitting in the Bank of England vaults as part of the foreign exchange reserves of a central bank like the RBA. Gold is just gold. It'll never fork. There will only ever be essentially one type of it. And that is a fundamental characteristic. It's a precondition for something to work as money. Otherwise, again, I go back to this example of imagine we were using Bitcoin as the premier monetary asset around the world today already. Over the last six months, every single every single employee around the world would have had to now go, okay, do I want to be paid in Bitcoin or Bitcoin Cash or Bitcoin Gold? Every single business would have had to start pricing its goods and services in three different types of Bitcoin. It would have had to have start keeping keeping transaction records and accounting and P and in three different types of currency. That is, that is actually chaos, not not clarity. And when when I sort of start to think about that going to its logical extreme and crypto enthusiasts saying this will be fantastic because in the end the money the, the market will be able to decide that that that's a barter system ultimately right where everyone can choose whatever form of money they want and I might take you know cryptocurrency A today because that's more useful for me to go to Woolworths but cryptocurrency B tomorrow because on Sunday I need to go to Bunnings that that just doesn't make any sense at all so yeah I think there's a a, a lot of issues that when you stop and think about this, the, the, the forking of Bitcoin, it to me, it fundamentally proves why it will never be a, a major monetary asset used in society.
0: Yeah, it certainly sounds like it would, uh, it would cause some interesting problems. Certainly, it uh, sounds like the problems could be a lot more severe than the problems it's trying to solve in the first place. Absolutely. So, given everything you've just said, do you think that Bitcoin could ever actually re- completely replace a country's currency?
1: I mean, in in theory, the answer, of course, has to be yes. But in practice, I, I think for a lot of the reasons I've already discussed, I, I think no. And and I think then when you particularly think about it from the perspective of a nation state, nation states want to control their own currency. And you know, indeed, if you if you look at Europe today, you can see the problems that have developed or occurred where you have a handful of countries that are not in charge of their own monetary policy and are essentially having it dictated to them. Um, you know, in this scenario, you've essentially got a currency that exists as software, is controlled by a large group of, in many cases, anonymous people. Um, so, why a why a nation state, why a democratically elected leader would choose to do that? I, I just can't see the I can't see the rationale as to why they would.
0: Do you reckon uh, perhaps in a situation like Zimbabwe was in a few years ago, or where Venezuela is now, where the Uh, where the country's currency is um, performing so badly uh, that it it's basically unusable do you think it might have a role in a situation like that
1: well I think um, I think again the answer is yes and we're seeing that in real terms we're seeing people in in Zimbabwe in Venezuela for very obvious reasons going well I'd rather own anything other than than the local currency but that anything is not just Bitcoin; it's gold, it's US dollars, it's gasoline, it's it's you name it. So again, like if 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 we're arguing or if we're thinking about a world where more and more countries just descend into chaos, basically, then sure, maybe Bitcoin continues to prosper, but that's not exactly a world that I think any of us want to move further towards. So, um, you know, in in again within the confines of a relatively normal functioning market economy. Then I just can't see how Bitcoin becomes the the premier monetary asset, as opposed to you know it may well continue as a vehicle for speculation, um, and with some minor use cases in day to day commerce. But that's a that's a very different proposition to usurping the the US dollar, for example.
0: Yeah, I remember reading recently that the amount of power that's currently consumed by Bitcoin miners is. More than 161 different nations on earth I think that was the number Maybe it was 139 um, And if at the current rate I believe it was going to be using The entire world's electricity supply By about 2020 um, It seems difficult to imagine How how that would fit in, in In a world where we were actually using it As the central currency
1: well, yeah, maybe, maybe people need to go long, you know, uranium, coal and renewable energies <laughs> ra- rather than, than, than Bitcoin. But, but it's a fair point that you make because it does then come back to or, or, or goes back to some of the questions around what does Bitcoin really solve in a lot of ways. And, and again, the, there's this idea that it can be used for rapid anonymous payment all around the world. But actually, if you look at the speed at which transactions take place over the Bitcoin network, it's not particularly fast. It's not particularly efficient. No doubt there will be other cryptos that come along that are far more efficient. Indeed, there are already some that that look like they're heading that way. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a very good point. In, indeed, there's a, a gentleman. His, his name is a little bit difficult to pronounce, but Sa- Safaideen Dean is the the closest I'll get to it. He he is actually writing a book and has been interviewed on a. Uh, it's called the Bitcoin Standard. Um, and he is a massive crypto buller. I disagree with a lot that he has to say, but he's an interesting guy. But even he points out Bitcoin will never be used in you know widely in terms of day-to-day commerce for everyday transactions. It's fundamentally unsuited to that purpose. So again, you sort of say, okay, well, is this is this is this the oil or is this the pipeline? It sounds like it's, if anything, a pipeline, possibly not even a very efficient one at that. So um, yeah, I think it's a, it's another. It's another question mark to have about what this thing really is and why it should form, you know, a small bit of possibly the risk capital in a portfolio. But, yeah, don't kid yourself. You're making a, you know, a like-for-like substitute with gold or with dollars or, or with something else.
0: I, uh, I wonder whether the analogy, to go back to what you were saying about the tech bubble before, is not maybe more with an Vista or with a Ask Jeeves than with a Google. Um as you know, uh, a pioneering com- you know uh, opportunity that's approaching things in a different way, but ultimately is going to be replaced by something that's more suited to people's needs.
1: That's 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 a very very likely outcome as well. So, and, and it's really interesting you say that, Patrick, because most crypto enthusiasts will argue that the reason that'll never happen to Bitcoin is because of this network effect that Bitcoin has. It's already the biggest crypto. It's the one that most people know about. And again, that that may well be true in terms of Bitcoin is the best known crypto asset. But I I then look at the network effect of of Bitcoin and I compare it to the US dollar, the network effect that the dollar has or the network effect that gold has. And Bitcoin absolutely pales in comparison. If If you think, you know, the dollar is, you know, the US Treasury says the dollar is money. The Federal Reserve says the dollar is money. The Seventh Fleet says the dollar is money. And pretty much all around the world dollars are accepted in commerce desired in commerce you know used to settle you know international payments you name it when it comes to gold there are three billion people on the planet that own gold and it is in every irrespective of race religion or creed it is the most ostentatious display of wealth that humanity's ever come up with so when I look at that network argument for bitcoin or the network effect argument for bitcoin I say okay it may well be the best known crypto it's still a million miles short of where Dollars or Euros, Yen, and in particular Golda.
0: I guess on the, the, when you're talking about network effects, uh, MySpace had a very strong network effect if we go back uh, about 12 years ago, but that got taken over by, well, not taken over, but replaced by Facebook. So it's not impossible to break a network effect. It might not happen very often um, and it might be difficult to do, but it does happen.
1: Absolutely, absolutely it does
0: um and on on that kind of note i guess it makes sense to move into uh, ico's or initial coin offerings so i guess these are the the competitors to bitcoin so if you could maybe just explain what an ico is and you know what why did they matter because i think people are going to be hearing a lot more about these in the coming uh weeks months years
1: yeah, look, I think the the, the ICO craze, which is, has really taken off this year, is um, it's not getting it's not got as much attention as the rising price of Bitcoin has, but it's certainly the, the sort of secondary story to the, the crypto craze. And and in essence, an ICO is where a company, rather than issuing shares and and taking fiat currency for those shares, they essentially issue crypto tokens to investors who will typically pay with Bitcoin or Ethereum or some other kind of crypto. So I suppose instead of you liquidating your Bitcoin for a fiat currency gain, which you transfer back to your bank account, you can essentially transfer over some Bitcoin. to whoever's doing the next ICO, you receive some tokens or crypto tokens. And nominally, or at least the hope is, the value of your tokens will then rise or fall depending on the business success or the underlying premise of whatever that company is trying to deliver and there have been hundreds of these things it's it is quite incredible because what you've found in in the last year is that the amount of money being raised by ICOs is kind of it's sort of surpassed the amount of money being raised venture capital in this space you name it so it's a, wow. a huge amount of money that's 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 sort of sloshing around now but in a way that's no surprise because there are a lot of early investors in Bitcoin and ethereum that are probably going well, you know what, I don't really want to liquidate my gains, have it go back into a bank account and have the IRS or whoever come after me for a huge tax bill. I'd rather go and buy some tokens, I suppose, and essentially, for want of a better term, diversify my my crypto exposure. Um, Look, there are some really obvious attractions to the businesses that are in this space. Um, It opens up a global pool of capital rather than, you know, you sort of more, more likely having to stick within your own borders. Um... compared to the VC model or or going to institutions and and the like trying to raise wealth, which would seem like a comparative straitjacket, this potentially offers you a really, really fast way of of getting funding. Um, But the fundamental issue, which is the advantage to a business, but the real drawback to the investor, is that you're not buying shares. You don't have ownership of a business as a result of this. You own a token, um, which, as I say, you hope will then track the performance of the business but you don't have any of the same rights or protections that an investor in a listed security or even in a private company potentially um, has so you you can see the attraction as to why people would want to raise money via an ICO Um, but from an investor's perspective it is really the most high-risk kind of gambling you can you can kind of do I'm sure there'll be a couple that absolutely skyrocket create great businesses and you know like an early investor in Amazon or Facebook would have been You'll end up, you know, getting you know life changing results, but and, and returns. But I would imagine that you know for ninety eight, ninety nine percent of the people that are that are investing in these things, they are are going to um, fall well short of their dreams when it comes to the returns they they generate.
0: Well, I guess that kind of concludes the main section of our interview. But there's a few regular questions that we like to ask of each guest. Um, we do need to, to modify them slightly to suit, suit your expertise, but I, I'm, I'm sure we can do so. Um, so first of all, one of the key objectives for the podcast is to teach the audience something had, they hadn't thought about before. Um, can you tell us something important that you think investors aren't thinking about right now?
1: I think if there's, if there's one or a couple of key issues, I think that in the last few years, um, investors' faith in, let's call it the central bank put, uh, has, has obviously led them to chase chase risk, chase yield, and, and push up the price of assets um, to you know far beyond historical norms. Um, that has worked for a short period of time. You know, 10 years is not really that long. Um, I do not think that by the end of this cycle, that'll continue to be the case. So I really worry about investors overpaying for assets today. I know I'm not unique in that. Um, I also think that There is a lack of appreciation for risk in in the market today. And when I talk about risk, I'm not really talking about just volatility and the ability for the market to correct in in nominal terms. Credit risk, inflation risk, liquidity risk, I think is a big one as well that investors just aren't paying anywhere near enough attention to. Um, And I think the final one, which I think some people would definitely disagree with me on, but I think it's worth raising anyway is in the last few years, investors have grown very, very concerned about the lack of real business investment that that large-scale corporates have engaged in. And quite often people look and say, look, these these companies are sitting on record levels of cash on their balance sheets, rates are low, why aren't they outspending? They're sitting on record levels of cash, but they're sitting on record levels of debt as well. So if you actually look at the health of corporate balance sheets, I would say that on balance... They've probably declined since the GFC started, and if you're you know if you're on a, if you're on the board of a, of a listed corporate, you'd be looking at that and you'd be worried because you'd be thinking, well, if, if interest rates normalise, then the amount of money that we owe at higher rates starts to really put a you know put a dent in our in our operations, cash flow, you name it. So I'm not sure that businesses can meaningfully expand capex as much as we'd like them to. So. You know, ultimately, over the next five to ten years, you know, how does that catalyse into a risk for investors? It's I'm just not sure where the earnings growth is going to come from for businesses, and so then when you look at the the price investors are paying today for the earnings businesses are, are already generating, I I can't see how the real return in in, in listed equity markets is much much higher than zero in real terms in the dec- in the decade ahead.
0: Yeah for sure I'm, I know some a lot of financial planning firms have started adjusting the uh, the re- assumed rates of returns on their investments. The underlying investments haven't changed but their assumptions when they're putting together a plan to go out to a client um, have dropped sometimes by three four percent per annum which might not sound like a lot, but when you're talking about compounding over 20 or 30 years, the, the difference that 3 or 4% can make is absolutely huge.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you think of a lot of people that are entering retirement or might already be 5 to 10 years in, you know, if they're sitting there going, well, I think my portfolio is going to deliver 8 9% per annum and, and therefore we'll be able to fund X lifestyle, what if the portfolio just holds ground? Um, and, and the reality is there are periods where market you know, markets go through decades, sometimes longer than that, where the real return on financial assets is is less than zero that that that's not a that's not a sort of a black swan that some people might might think it is there are plenty of examples of that happening so i think that given where valuations are given the the the, the risks in in the monetary environment unresolved macroeconomic issues and the like i I think that to me would be the baseline expectation as an investor anything above zero is a win in, in you know in the next decade
0: well the second question for this uh, segment is a bit of a fun one. If you, if you could go back in time to when you were finishing school or uni and give yourself uh, one piece of investing advice, what would it be?
1: The simple answer is stay out of the casino and stay away from the horses. <laughs> um, but I, I suppose the more practical one for, for everyday investors or for every investor really is actually better risk management and discipline about when to, to cut winners and when to, when to take profits. Um, so I think... Volatility on the downside scares a lot of us to actually sell out at the wrong time and, and, and panic out. Um, greed on the upside um, prevents us from, from selling or at least taking profits when we should. So that is the one thing, if I could go back 20 years, to say every investment that you make, you should have a, a, an exit strategy both on the upside and the downside and, and stick to it more stringently. I, I've certainly learned that lesson a few times in my life. I'm doing my best to not have to learn it any, any, you know, any more times.
0: And just finally, if the market was going to close the next five years starting tomorrow and you could only own one asset, what would it be?
1: Look, no surprise there, Patrick, that my answer is going to be physical gold and, and silver to, to, to some extent as well. Look, in, in an environment where markets are closed, it's, it's clearly not an environment where we're getting more prosperous, where society's functioning well, I suppose, or, or at its maximum capacity. So clearly in an environment where, where markets are closed, um, preservation of capital should be rule number one, and, and no asset does that better than gold. Um, but even without the markets closing, again, I look at the the monetary environment we're in, the the macro environment we're in, and the market environment we're in in terms of the prices people are paying for assets and the like. Now, I, I think the next ten years are a really, really difficult are going to be a really difficult time for investors. So, you know, allocating you know five to ten percent of a portfolio to gold. Um, is, is just a really sensible risk management thing to uh, you know thing to do. Um, yeah so for me personally my answer would be would be gold bullion and I'm not just saying it I, I live it it is the largest asset
0: in my portfolio. Well Jordan, thanks for speaking to us. It's been fascinating to hear your thoughts. My pleasure, Patrick, really enjoyed the chat. Well, that's it again for this week, but not for the year. We've got one more episode to share with you, which is guest hosted by LiveWire's managing director, Tom McKay. He recently sat down with Nikki Shavak, partner and co-founder of Blackbird Ventures, which is about to become Australia's largest venture capital firm. Nikki is not your typical VC. With views influenced by classic value investors and a keen interest in public markets, there will be some highly valuable lessons for all investors. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can follow us on Twitter at Livewire Markets or sign up for free to our website at livewiremarkets.com. If you're interested in hearing more about Bitcoin, let us know in the comments, as we may sit down with an active Bitcoin trader to hear the other side of the story early next year. I hope you have a happy and safe holiday period, and as always, thanks for listening.